0: Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, what typically happens is Alessandro Maniscalco and I share our analysis of the DC films from Warner Brothers Studios. But in this episode, we have a special guest who has been an active part of the Justice League universe since the beginning. He is a New Yorker who studied at Ithaca College and began his career as a photographer, doing a lot of portraits and non-fiction photography. But around the time of the movie 300, he met Deborah Snyder and Zack Snyder, and then was hired as the set photographer for Watchmen, a film that I know many of our listeners absolutely love. That experience on Watchmen introduced him to the realm of comic books and started a professional relationship between him and the Cruel and Unusual Films production company that's run by the Snyders and he has been the set photographer for all five films in the Justice League universe thus far. So you've certainly seen many of his iconic images of the DC characters that we love, and you probably also know him as one of the level-headed people on social media. We are thrilled to have as our guest Clay Enos. Clay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Ah, Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, we've seen lots of your images uh, and they've really played a big role in our fandom in terms of building anticipation for movies, but also capturing the feelings of the stories and the characters that we saw in the movies after they're released. But I just want to make sure that we understand what your job is. So could we just start by um, explaining what it means to be a set photographer and who is it that defined your job responsibilities?
1: Well, the the set photographers have a long storied history within the industry, so much so that there's a sort of union requirement to have me on set on the bigger union films. And I'm a member of that union, uh, the camera union. So, And I think originally, film was this precious object that you couldn't just let anybody get their hands on. It was really reserved for the director and the editor as a movie was crafted. Meanwhile, the, the marketing arm, as film has always been a commercial endeavor to some extent, was, was chomping at the bit to get images to get out there and to sell the film. Hmm. And the still photographer was a logical extension. That that workflow of still photographs was built and is made for sort of quick uh, reuse in, in other things like movie posters and the like. the The difference now, of course, is that a big movie – a tentpole movie, if you will, or even just any movie. Mm-hmm. There are unbelievable demands across the consumer product universe, across happy meals. <laughs> you know, there's, it can be really anything. And those images, while sure they could pull from the digital, uh, process these days a little more easily, there's still a huge workflow built to use still photographs and that's what i contribute to so it's making up books movie posters consumer products happy meals postage stamps you know soda cans you name it that's where these images come in i'm not the continuity guy i'm not doing anything that's sort of directly related to the day-to-day filmmaking i I do have the pleasure of making an occasional in-film photograph of a young clark or Mm -hmm. something like that Mm -hmm. but uh but for the most part, my my effort is directed towards ladder promotion and support.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're probably most familiar with the images that are released on social media or the poster images. Um, but you mentioned consumer products. So like toys are, like you take a picture and then that gets sent to toy manufacturers or.
1: Yeah, I mean, at one point I was making images that were being used as the reference for what I think now is is Wonder Woman on a horse. Mm. And it's, it's not the final stuff, right? They're mm-hmm. not just using my photographs. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, I'm the sort of on-staff photographer for the giant movie. Mm-hmm. And, and photographic needs can run the gamut from an occasional Visa you know, passport-style photo, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'm happy to do, <laughs> to, to things that are a little more mission-critical. And because lead times on toys are so much further out than, than the needs of even the marketing team, no i'll be tapped and it and it's fun to do and it's fun to be able to contribute like that because so often on a movie set i'm the guy in the way
2: <laughs>
1: as a big the big machine is trying to make a film and tell a story <laughs> and i'm that i'm the fly on the wall for the fans and others just trying to document how it all unfolds yeah. and to try and make strong images that stand on their own.
0: I think I caught a glimpse of you in one of the the behind-the-scenes videos for BVS. I think there's like a big camera moving forward towards Batman and Superman and you're like crouching and trying to like crawl along with it. Is that you?
1: Yeah, that would be me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a few of us, you know, no one really realizes that the camera isn't just sitting there all by itself. There's Mm -hmm. an operator, there's often a first camera assistant, there could be a dolly grip, there could be maybe another person there or some sort of grip adjusting the light as the camera gets closer and i have to sort of find my way uh into that medley of folks and <laughs> and that can be challenging there's yeah. a lot of crawling crouching <laughs> you
0: have to be in shape for this job then
1: a little bit yeah you and and it's the running joke pretty much that i split my pants at least two or three times a show <laughs>
0: Better <laughs> using the spotting now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so you mentioned the workflow of the still images. Uh, so I wonder if you could just help us understand that workflow better. Like, you, uh, do they request images from you, or do you just take images that are kind of on the spot that hit, inspiration hits you, and then you send those up the workflow? And then where do they go after they leave your camera?
1: Well, it's a little of both. You know, earlier you had asked what how my my role is defined. I was kind of thrown into it without a whole lot of. Uh, guidance, other than a very simple list of ten uh, requirements of having the director and actor head to toe, empty sets, things like that. So I I've defined the job as I would imagine anyone would who's enthusiastic about making photographs. Uh, you're you're a, I'm invited into a place that a lot of people would sort
0: of kill to be a part of. Oh yeah, I think a lot of them listen to this podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, terrific, and and so. They can trust me that I've got their back in a sense. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to give insight into how any given scene was shot and as as well as support the digital media team by getting that empty set that they can Mm -hmm. later use to map or use as a texture within a, a kind of, you know, a future experience. They should be rest assured it would be, it would be impossible of course to have everyone come visit mm-hmm. but that's that's what I'm gonna try and do and and when I shoot the photographs at the end of the day or or usually I'm somewhat reluctant to do it because it's a very different mind space'll I'll edit through all my mistakes the out of focus ones, the redundancies mm-hmm. and and they will disappear forever mm-hmm. but that's okay there's still usually way too much left on the hard drives. And then those will go off to, in my case, the Warner Brothers Photo Lab, where they will begin their uh, circuitous route to the various, um, departments that need them. Mm -hmm. And it's all digital and, and the rest of it. It's all encrypted hard drives if I'm far, far away. And, uh, off they go. And then that's pretty much the last I will see of those images. I don't, I don't release images without Mm -hmm. permission. I'm Mm -hmm. not the guy who's deciding when and where, Mm -hmm. uh, images get how they get finished right um i'm a a little more of the day-to-day guy so if a producer on the day needs something or needs a quick look at a costume approval i would have that and happy to oblige but the bigger splashier uh releases are while my photographs aren't my decision
0: Mm -hmm. so someone else higher up is deciding like oh we're going to send these to entertainment weekly this is a good one that we're going to send to empire that kind of thing
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and that's often the filmmakers and they may be doing that or that process is ongoing. It doesn't happen sort of lickety split or unless it was say Henry with a lightsaber. (laughs) Some of that, some of that visual repartee that went on between JJ and and Zach. Mm -hmm. That's a little more spontaneous, Uh but also not entirely related to the film. So it's okay. Yeah, that was just that was just directors geeking out. Right. But that other that other stuff, I can I'll often see it if it's happening far in advance. There, every once in a while, there's a an initial image that gets released. I'll sort of be part of it. But I, I don't editorialize. It's just fun <laughs> to see that it's mm-hmm. in the time.
0: right when there are the really iconic posters or we know, you know, oh, this is going to be a big poster that's going to be all over the place do is there somebody in marketing that is kind of like designing the poster and they say we want this sort of a pose and then they hand that to you and say can you take a shot that matches our vision or do you take shots and send it to them and then they build the poster based on what they're seeing from you
1: you know i I can't speak to all poster art but in general there are it's a triple bid process this is a giant endeavor Mm -hmm. with huge consequence so there are firms that have found their way, presumably mostly in Los Angeles, that are just dedicated to doing that kind of gallery art. And they will have dozens and dozens of conceptual drawings that will be presented, and out of that culled down, and then we will try and address all of them. So there could be up to a hundred different poses and concepts and various lighting scenarios that will... Try and be addressed on the day of the photo shoot. Mm-hmm. That said, the unit photographer, my union gig, okay. doesn't necessarily follow. It doesn't necessarily follow that I would be a guarantee to shoot the poster. I see. I just happen to do both um, because of my background and my relationships. So it's a real treat to be the only person to photograph these folks in costume. Yeah. It could just as well be a legend or a more commercial photographer could come in and just take that work i see but in in my case i do get to do it all and it's fun because i get insight into that so on the day of a poster shoot or multiple days if it's a larger cast there are many 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 boxes to tick off Mm -hmm. as we address the various aesthetics and the images to be honest are quite simple and raw in that we're not worried too much about anything other than the poses and the gestures and the expressions and the qualities of light Mm -hmm. the the magic of a movie poster more often than not is very much in that with the geniuses the anonymous geniuses Mm -hmm. at those art houses in los angeles
0: i think there are some geniuses working on the wonder woman film right now would you agree on that yeah i mean really
1: really really strong stuff yeah i love it it's fun because i remember her you know kneeling down i remember that moment Mm -hmm. of course but I couldn't guarantee that that's one photograph. Even mm-hmm. this is the, this is the nature of the the process. We're if your podcast deals with the literary nature and the sort of larger allegorical arcs. Mm-hmm. Movie posters <laughs> are in the same space. Those aren't mm-hmm. photographs in the traditional sense. They are very much evocative, commercial, but also at times you know spiritual mm-hmm. undertakings to evoke a character that has been with us our entire lives and many people's entire mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. This isn't just willy-nilly, come to the movies, spend your ten bucks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is for the ages.
0: I feel like Wonder Woman, are, the images are going to be that way once we see the movie. It also makes me think of the Batman v Superman image of Superman standing upright and the rain is hitting him and it's kind of in a dark space. But that ended up to me being very emblematic of the movie where he's trying to stand tall, and trying to be the Superman character doing what he can, but there's rain hitting him, and it's dark around him, and the world is kind of giving him all this turmoil. So I, I can totally see what you're saying, where these images, they carry a lot of meaning just in one still shot, you know, or one, one image.
1: Yeah, and that's the nature of photography, right? It has to evoke in an instant what a film can unfold over over time, and that's that. there's always that challenge is to, to make a still photograph evoke something that others will experience in a linear nature. You know, thankfully there's a team of folks both at the conceptual end and in the and in the post-processing end that are on the same page.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and there's fun visions and it's uh, it's got to be worse than any PowerPoint deck most of us have slogged through <laughs> in terms of approval processes. Movie posters are you know they live forever mm-hmm. on, on a lot of levels. Yeah. Uh, Part of that, and just to deviate, I love the way fans take the snippets and elements of things that do come out and make their own stuff. I think those folks understand the decision-making and the unbelievable art that goes into the final product. But it's really fun to see the creativity express itself. Uh, along the way from fans,
0: yeah, and this give and take, where you know, there's this creative process that you talked about that puts it out there, and then fans take it up and they put their own creativity into it. Do you know if Zach uh, also sees like the memes and sees some of the fan art that people make?
1: I think I think we all do. I mean, it's the nature of the Twitter sphere, right? I mean, some some of us spend more time on social media than others, but the the really funny stuff and the stuff that gets uh, repeated mm-hmm. if you will the true memes yeah they, they make their way to all of us <laughs> and and often with a really with a with a sort of amazed fascination and sense of humor you know we're in a really really unusual time in which this social media platforms can give voice to folks that would have otherwise just sort of sat quietly and anonymously you know unknown mm-hmm. and I, it Poses huge challenges when you're a director or somebody in the spotlight who is trying to balance their own creative vision with the cacophonous voices of the crowd. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, I don't envy folks who have to be in that position. But when it's light and humorous, uh, bring it on.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask another question on the topic of the movie posters. And the one thing that really strikes me about the Wonder Woman posters is it's really, it's Wonder Woman. Like, she is alone in her posters and there's a series of the power and the wonder. So, was that a decision from one of these firms that, like, we can have this series that is really her. She's going to carry this movie.
1: Yeah, I, I presumably. Yeah, I don't know how you would... Run a kind of Star Wars esque one with the villains and the droids and the you know what I mean. <laughs> There's a big looming face of Darth Vader. No, it's very much Wonder Woman, and I think I think it's such a lovely, long overdue character to see at cinematic scale that to at this point dilute the poster with the other characters and, and or to hint at additional narrative with their inclusion. Would would be a bad decision in mm-hmm. my opinion. I, I mm-hmm. think these posters are super strong. I love the color palette mm-hmm. I love that there, There's a simplicity even though there's a ton going on. Yeah, uh, so I'm all about Wonder Woman by yeah. herself, right? Now.
0: That's great so I wanted to talk to you about uh, Larry Fong who is very often the DP for Zack Snyder so in our opinions, we've really appreciated Larry Fong's work. He brings this, like, deeply rich and striking image uh, to the screen. And some of the shots that he has just really seem like paintings and their grandeur and everything. But I don't have enough experience or knowledge about, like, the lenses and the lighting or whatever else uh, to, be, like, to be able to tell exactly how he achieves his visual style. So I was wondering, just somebody who knows images and knows lighting and knows that kind of stuff, if you could shed some light on... Uh, Larry Fong's work as cinematographer and then do you ever like get to just talk shop with him about photography and that kind of stuff
1: you know Larry too is a long time friend of Zach's so it's that that relationship and that work relationship is really casual and fun and, and a lot of times that there's an alchemy that I'm not even aware of you know, the, <laughs> the machine of filmmaking at this level the numbers of lights and the ceilings and the rafters that are there ahead of time the the thinking and planning for every scene and shot happens long before I walk on set in the morning.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, just the, 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 the electric demands, the, sh- the sheer cables and, and power generation that's required for most of our efforts, hmm. there's no way they could be as spontaneous as I, I tend to be. So a cinematographer's world is very different than a still photographer's world. At that scale, uh-huh. we could be making a small indie and doing it handheld, you know, in the back of a truck. I get it, but for the most part, uh, these these fantastic worlds that that Larry is rendering through the camera lens is is the product of a massive amount of prep, and then on the day, as we say, the the final tweaks and things are very much. In his hands and his team the, the key grip and the gaffer, you know, so that that triumvirate there really does sort of bring it down to the the final shots, into the little uh, the little tweaks of a bounce and things like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's hard to get into the head of the cinematographer, given the machine that's it. Larry's responsible for it's a there's so many moving parts. I'm I'm sometimes in awe that I just get to pop in. <laughs> make what looks like a beautifully lit photograph through the massive efforts of dozens and dozens of people so we don't talk too much shop other than I can share with him a quick little you know shot on the back of my camera and he'll he's just because of his nature he'll he'll always be somewhat doubting but but happy (laughs) you're always going to second guess your work and so he's he'll look to me and say is that all right you know and I'll be like of course there amazing (laughs) but that's the nature of an artist right we're never we're never entirely sure and then maybe the worst thing to do is look to another artist for validation Mm -hmm. because we're all then we'll start to doubt ourselves and it's this domino effect of doubt and
0: (laughs) as an amateur movie watcher when i see a larry fong movie i can somehow tell that it's a larry fong movie but i don't know what i'm seeing or like do you know what we're recognizing when we can tell like wow that's larry fong
1: I I think like anything, you know, there's a sensitivity to light. This this crazy, elusive, sort of ever-present thing in the universe, right? The photons bouncing around, not colliding with each other, bouncing off other objects. That sensitivity is unique to every person who's tuned into it. And Larry has his favorite things. And Larry is always sort of watching I've been with him off movie sets and he'll notice the light in a room and and he'll have run it forward where what would make how that would he he's understands it emotionally so how what what you would necessarily shoot in that light for a more effective storytelling he really takes it to the next level as a still photographer I might just put anything in there and it would look cool Mm -hmm. but he he understands the narrative component that can be best placed in that light, and he's always looking at it, and he's always seeing it. And I think that kind of maturity and understanding is what's coming across in Larry Fong movies, yeah. in the movies he shoots. It's it's really fun, but so much of it is just worked sensitivity. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? You don't. You you may have started with a certain attraction to it, but he has honed it, and he's paying attention to it, and he understands the gear. You know, required to recreate it.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you're talking about the light though, because I just keep hearing that DC films are too dark and don't have any light in them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, as you know, if you're dealing with this stuff from a literary point of view, we are not telling like singular stories that live in a vacuum. This is the building of an arc that has an in, there's intertwining pieces. If we had decided that the DCEU, you know, should be on Netflix and experienced over three seasons, no one would be lamenting the the kind of maybe the dark brooding start to things.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: They'd be excited about the coming adventures and
2: uh-huh.
1: action or God knows what, right? But we've got a different medium, a medium that's older than binge-watching,
2: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> okay? And so I think... We're we're just going to have to fight through and tell these complicated, uh, important myths without the undistracted by the critics. Mm-hmm. And the critics, I think, are starting to wake up to the idea that oh wait a minute, this isn't just the popcorn flick. This is attempting uh, a critical look at our world through the veil of uh, you know modern myth making.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of critics, you know, when they heard Batman v Superman, they figured, oh, this is a cash grab of just, you know, going to have these characters come in and it'll be like an alien versus predator thing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the way we've been analyzing it, we've just really been appreciating the deep character arcs and the study of humanity and that Batman and Lex represent and their relationships to power and to powerlessness. And then Superman, you know, Clark trying to deal with... You know, the fact that good and evil aren't so simple, like you you try to do something that you think is good, but you can't actually control everything that's going to come after that or the way that other people are going to react to it is outside of your control, right? You maybe pull this ship out that is, you know, stranded, but you can't control how everybody else is going to react to it or the story that they're going to tell about whether that was the right thing to do or, oh, he shouldn't have done that. He should have done this over here. Yes.
1: Yes, I mean, that, that is, I mean, kudos to Zach for attempting this kind of complicated narrative within the confines of a giant studio. Look, studios aren't, you know, immune to wanting to make money. That is how it works. This is, we're in a symbiotic relationship of box office and narrative. But, but I think Zach has really found a lovely balance where he can tell the stories he wants to tell, evoke the, the tropes that he's interested in and satisfying the box office. You know, the latter may never be happy, but let's not, we, we as moviegoers should stop being accountants. We should be uh-huh. moviegoers and we should be immersed in the storytelling and the powerful nature that film is as a storyteller of storytelling. It is, you know, I mean, we're for, for any number of reasons, everybody knows who won the weekend. It, it's maddening and stupid that we waste our time on that. We, as moviegoers, we should care less uh-huh. about who won the weekend. And and instead, be concerned about what are the ideas that are coming forth here. Uh-huh. And you know what? It's That's the nature of the beast. There's people who love accounting. Uh-huh. And we all get caught up in it because of our, uh, the nature of the beast. But... You know, it's not as simple as just two thumbs up as it once was. It's not as simple as who won the weekend. It's much richer. And I think we do ourselves disservice by not diving into that rich experience right out of the gate, as you guys have done.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is actually validating some things. So we've been doing this analysis of BVS, and we've been pointing out, like, what we feel are some really deep connections and parallels and things. But some people that I talk to that respond to the podcast will say... That's great that you guys are seeing these themes, but I don't think that the filmmakers even intended them. I think you're reading too much into them. But the way that you're talking about it, it seems like that the filmmakers and Zach from the top, they are thinking about the themes and they are thinking about human experiences and putting that into narrative form and telling that story.
1: I I would absolutely agree. You do not spend three years and up of your life, really, to just, you know, throw punches and blow things up. You just, nobody does that. And I know for sure that this, the gang that I work with is not interested in that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is that those are layers on top of a much more deep, rich, interesting theme of humanity. I mean, can you imagine in the prime of your life taking three years and not wanting to tell a story of significance?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? like, of course that's what's going on. It doesn't always work. And, and sometimes the themes are, are lighter and thinner. I mean, even a comedy, you know, a simple Hollywood comedy is going to evoke something that has meaning to the people who are crafting it. They might not spend three years of their life, but they've mm-hmm. got this richness. No one is working in this business because they just like blowing things up. Except for maybe the effects guys, <laughs> and that's and that's exactly what they should be doing. But the but those those that who are following the film from prep to post generally concern themselves with evoking those bigger notions.
0: Mm-hmm. Now I do think some films are better at evoking or achieving those bigger notions, and and BVS especially I think does a great job with those. Like one that really strikes me from BVS uh, is. We've all heard this idea that, oh, power corrupts, but I think BVS really explored something interesting where it says, it asks the question, what happens when powerful people feel powerless And then how do they react to that so lex reacts in one way to him basically feeling powerless and that he's not god or his you know father maybe having some things when he was younger and then definitely bruce right bruce is a powerful person with a lot of influence a lot of skills um, a lot of gadgets (laughs) but we get to see bruce like how does he handle it psychologically when he feels powerless to prevent the death of his parents or he feels powerless to save robin or now it's really in his face like He's running into that cloud of smoke in Metropolis, and he is utterly powerless to stop these superpowered beings that have now arrived. And to me, there's this, you know, exploration of, wow, powerlessness can corrupt maybe even more damagingly than like power corrupts you, or it's Mm -hmm. maybe the mixture of the two. And to me, I thought that was a really exploration of Lex and Bruce kind of in parallel, and one of them is able to kind of pull himself out of it, and the other one just kind of goes off the deep end by the end. In Lex,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you can't. There's no. There's no mistaking that those dichotomies and those oppositional ideas in Terrio's scripts, in Zach's sensitivities. That's exactly right. I mean, I don't. It doesn't. It'll get missed on people the same way. The same way it's missed on our current day novel writing or any Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. endeavor to story to tell stories i mean it's everything is on a bell curve of understanding as well so that's okay you know you can be 10 years old and enjoy just seeing your favorite superheroes rendered on film Mm -hmm. that's that's super cool but those of us who want to then go a little deeper will be satisfied in a film like bbs in a, in a, in a lot of the films so far within the DCEU, mm-hmm. but, and and I'm not, you know, I'm I'll work for anybody. I'm not. I just happen to have had a, a nice little run here. I think I would like to work for filmmakers that endeavor to tell stories that have those deeper meanings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I don't have. I'm not quite at the position in my life where I can just pick and choose, you know, filmmakers to with whom I can work. But but that's where my head. That's where my heart would. Uh, draw me. Mm-hmm.
0: Another one from BVS that I think is very relevant now is the, the media is a character in BVS, I would say. And I think Zach even mentioned this in an interview. He said, like, the media is actually one of the principal characters, along with, you know, Lois and Clark and Bruce and Lex and stuff. And to me, it's really interesting to see the news media represented in the movie, but then also the public and the kind of, like, mass, uh, you know, mass consciousness of how they react to events and that it becomes sort of this uh, feeding frenzy of, like, we love Superman. Oh, wait, now we hate Superman. Like or, or now we're so divided that we have to either completely adore him or we have to be afraid of him and try to take him down. And we watch, like, the public and the media kind of jumping to conclusions. And to me, that seems very relevant to today's society.
1: That never happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, holy cow, right? I mean, it's uh, it's it's like a premonition of sorts. And it and it is with the polarizing characters and and uh, opinions on parade and yeah absolutely and, you know a, a ton of work went into all of the media elements in VBS you know a lot a lot a lot of people and and conversations around the role of media and how that stuff was to be portrayed so you're right in in seeing it and I think yeah it's scary how prescient that those issues are today.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate talking to you about that because, yeah, I can't even count the number of people who have said they've accused us of reading too far into it and like finding meaning. And they're like, oh, the filmmakers didn't even mean that. You're just like making, you know, making stuff up out of strewn images.
1: Well, I mean, that that response to me seems somewhat short sighted. If you can see it in a film, then it was probably intended and it does exist. It allowed themselves, like, like, don't fight that impulse to dig into filmmaking. I mean, I was, I studied film in college and it was unbelievable how you could pick apart a film and it could be supported rigorously in an academic space. Mm-hmm. This isn't made up out of whole cloth. What you are seeing there is in, probably intended. And if it isn't, then it's just so woven into the zeitgeist that it was a subconscious thing to mm-hmm. be there, but it's still connected to our time and place. To, to dismiss it that the filmmakers didn't intend it is to sell the entire medium of film short on its power to evoke and to stir a conversation and to, to elicit ideas that are floating through the, the culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Just yeah, I mean, I I, I sympathize with mm-hmm. folks who who want to dismiss your rigorous effort because it's just they're I'm sadly they're wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't like that, you know. I don't want to turn it into sort of a polarizing argument, but yeah. I would wish they could allow themselves the deeper dive.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's, it's fun. It's fun it's, and it's satisfying.
0: I totally agree. It's been really fun to dig into this movie and not every movie that i try to dig into gives back as much as bvs did but the thing about bvs that has kept us going all the way so far is that when we dig in deeper we find even more and then that just makes it even more rewarding yeah great
1: It's really great
0: yeah i wanted to check just one more quickly and then i can move on but uh, one more that i wanted to check was uh we've detected a falling, rising motif where, like, Bruce is often descending, like, he he enters the movie in the helicopter descending, he goes down uh, into the Batcave, he goes down into the underground boxing, so we've identified these, like, moments where it seems like there's this kind of falling thing for him, and then at the end, he is coming out of what looks kind of like a hellish landscape, whereas Superman is often positioned kind of up in the sky or up from above, Um, And so we feel like, again, this might be one thing where it was intentional, um, it was maybe just subconsciously in there, or maybe something that we've just made meaning out of, but where it really clicked for me was when identifying a Batman descending kind of motif, which fits with where his mental state was, and then in the Batman-Superman fight, Superman goes from hovering to on the ground to at one point Batman literally throws him down, you know, into the bottom of the building that they were fighting in. So to me, it's like, oh, Bruce's falling motif is now actually corrupting Superman and he's bringing Superman down until the Martha moment, which is obviously, you know, what happens there at rock bottom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, every, I can't speak to this specifics, but every frame is drawn by Zach beforehand. Wow. And every single frame, there's no, there's no mistakes in the sense of nothing happens by accident if that was coming across those perspectives, it it is with intention. Mm -hmm. I I can't even imagine happy accidents that happen all the time in (laughs) still photography Mm -hmm. happening at that level of filmmaking. So I think, yeah, terrific. And I do vaguely remember conversations along those lines more after the fact, uh, when, when the critics were having their field day, Mm That that things were being missed, it, and their frustration that things were being missed. Mm-hmm. But but that's okay. Again, we this is our world. There's a lot of voices, and you're never going to satisfy everyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think you're right. I think those are those beautiful, beautiful. I, I, a plus
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so zach i mean laying out all of the shots and everything is amazing and chris terrio which you know we've just been so impressed by his script with every little moment of dialogue being so brilliant you shared an image quite a while back where chris terrio was on the set and i think it was with like ben in the mech suit i was just curious like yeah, how the, often the, yeah on the radiators how often did uh chris terrio come around the set oh
1: you know i mean a filmmaker or a screenwriter Appears out there, out there as they wish. I
0: think everyone. We have a
1: fairly open, you know, friendly environment. So I think they were. I don't remember why Chris would come specifically, but I remember him showing up a few times. You know, he doesn't live. He didn't live. He lives in New York, Mm -hmm. as I understand it. So, and once the film is written, there's probably some rules around. You know, they can't continue to meddle or do anything like that. Depending, I don't. I don't know the ins and outs of that union and that that process, but uh, I think at one point he was reading he was reading lines for the president, you know, that were later replaced. Oh. <laughs> in a conference room, mm-hmm. so he was around enough that you know you'd always say hello and, and have a conversation and mm-hmm. and a friendship.
0: with time to nurture a, a friendship. Mm-hmm. So, Is that true with yeah. Just, Justice League too? He's popped in a little bit at Justice League or.
1: You know, not as much on Justice but I do remember him there at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I didn't see as much of him. But again, it, it, I think more of that has to do with Chris's schedule than it does with uh, any kind of uh, the filmmaking process.
0: Yeah, and the inter- more international travel, right? Because I actually wanted to ask you about the locations that you've been and if any locations have stood out. Because Justice League was in England quite a bit. Yep. Yeah, and I was just curious, just in the DC films that you've covered so far, like what are some of these settings or locations that have really stood out to you?
1: Well, I mean, I'm. It's it's known that I'm just sort of a sucker for a plane ticket. If I've got a gig, and I had to choose between the one across the street or the one that required me to hit an airport and fly for hours, I'm going for the latter. (laughs) So, I hope we never make a film in New York, just for just for the fun of it. You know, it's fun to be able to go somewhere like England. Where England was both for Justice League and Wonder Woman, so I spent a year of my life over there. You know, I have a soft spot for Vancouver, where we made our first film, where I made my first film, Watchmen, and 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 parts of others. Look, I you know, funny enough, I, just my own uh, landscape aesthetic. The Eastern Sierra is where we filmed a little the tail end of of Man of Steel. I think we made the Eastern Sierra, Tibet, and then that and those huge uh, radio arrays at the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just a beautiful part of the world. Hmm. And, and the thought of just being there on someone else's dime and being able to gallivant around and sort of own the space is really fun. You know, when a film, a film arrives, we kind of cordon off our territory and, and do what we need to do. And it's really fun sometimes when you're in places that would otherwise be off limits or hard to access, you know, by only by helicopter on a glacier in the middle of BC. That is really fun
2: to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Just sheer, just the the kid in you is like, oh my goodness! You know, mm-hmm. I, with my VHS camera on my shoulder, making my little movies with Steve and Tony in the neighborhood. So yeah, now I'm doing it on the big leagues. Bigly, I'm doing it bigly.
0: <laughs> and the, you went to Iceland as well for Justice League. We saw, we've seen a little bit of that footage, I think, already in some of the release stuff.
1: Yeah, Iceland was certainly a treat. I'd never been there before. And it was a super remote and and fascinating part of the world. I mean, I'd love to see more of it.
0: And the settings that are really uh, striking to me currently was because the Wonder Woman origin trailer that was released. I mean, the Themyscira looks so beautiful. And then they go to London, and and Diana makes the comment about how hideous London looks. Um, But to me, that just seems like, wow, they're really taking full advantage of the settings in the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's... That is the fun. Just like you've noticed, this stuff is, is done on purpose. And the, the contrast of Themiscura to a World War One London probably couldn't be more apropos for the contrast of the world of, of the Amazons and the world of man. So I think all that stuff's by design and it's, it's written in the script and it's, and it's evoked by the filmmakers and all the folk and the visual effects supervisors everybody's on board and understands the themes to be addressed so and and wonder woman 2 will have plenty to to dive into should you be willing to or want to
0: we are we are planning to i think it'll be great we're really looking forward to it so i wanted to step out of the dc films a little bit and just pick your brain about a couple more things um so First of all, uh, you've been using Vero True Social, and Zach actually has been as well. I wanted to just get your kind of thoughts on social media platforms.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we all sort of woken up to the fact that the, the existing triumvirate of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram—I don't do much Snapchatting, but we could throw that in there, too—are really just advertising platforms, hmm. and we are the fodder and the glue for those things. While they have offered remarkable connectivity and idea sharing, I think they've they need to mature and but are not capable of doing so because they are completely wed to the advertising model mm-hmm. and as a result the data mining model and as a result this the addictive they play on our sort of addictive brain centers. Mhm. Vero offers a very different approach, one that is ad free, that doesn't care if you'd go five times a day or not, that is really built around social as a human construct, where your friends become a resource and the people that you're interested in are, are someone you can tap. And, and I guess the analogy would be if you met somebody and they have invited you into their living room and you see their bookshelf, you have a new understanding of them or their movies. The movies sitting along their uh, library give you insight into their personality. Or if you go to a town you're not from but you have a friend there, you'd call them and say, hey, where should I eat? What should I do? Vero starts to be the tool to answer those questions and give that kind of insight without advertising, without the kind of forced stickiness of these other things. And And I'm just really hopeful that... People will sort of wise up to that. That that even the fake news thing that happened, it's all symptomatic of a, the kind of bizarre infrastructure on which the other ones are built, and mm-hmm. that is advertising. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's hard to believe that we all got seduced by something as crass as Facebook, and just and that we've we've sort of tolerated and numbed ourselves. To, to the invasion of privacy that we've given Target and the rest of them, right? Or any of that, pick mm-hmm. a banner ad. Mm-hmm. And I, and I just think it's time we all wake up and take back socializing online and make it ours to determine how we share, not for them to suck mm-hmm. us into sharing. So it's like, cause I think sharing is a beautiful thing. I mean, I do it supernaturally. I love to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm an artist, right? That's kind of my mo, but not everybody's necessarily like that. And there's just this, this singular advertising platform on which we're all trying to do it, and it's corrupted a number of us, and even corrupted the culture. If you want to run it through political spectrums, mm-hmm. so I think I think Vero offers a huge solution to a lot of those things. It's small now. But the first million people are never gonna be charged, so it behooves us all to set up accounts. And to rethink how you share online and, and rethink what you get from the other people you follow online mm-hmm. or engage with.
2: Mm-hmm. And Zach
1: and I are part of it because the well, full disclosure, mm-hmm. we know the guy who started it. Mm-hmm. He's a super, super comic book nerd. He owns two copies of Action Comics number one. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's a he's a he's a lovely comic book nerd with the means to to shift the paradigm back in our favor
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and i think it's this broader conversation too about like clickbait culture so like if the social media is not really about human interaction and human sharing instead the the social media is about oh consumers and we can track them and see what people are looking for and talking about and that kind of thing that to me also feeds into like, oh, I want to try to just gather as many clicks as I can. And that clickbait culture, I think, has really influenced comic book fans and superhero movie fans and stuff because to me it just seems like, and I think you had a post recently that garnered some attention where you talked about fans really clamoring for the trailer instead of sort of having patience and waiting for the trailer to come out and that the movie, you know, have some patience for November when Justice League's coming out. But to me, I just see so much online That covers and follows every little moment about a marketing or a lead up to a movie or anything that an actor says at all in the months before a movie comes out. And for me, I just feel like that's not time well spent. I think, or at least for me, I've made the personal decision that time is better spent to appreciate the art and dig into the art with other people who want to talk with you about it rather than. Hey, did you know? Did Ben Affleck say anything today, or did you know? Is that marketing department going to release a new image? You know, and and what resolution is it going to be in? Like all the way up to the movie. Yeah, and why can't I have
1: exactly what I want when I want it? And, and I look, I I my wife makes fun of me, but she likes it. That if if Eddie Van Halen had had Twitter back when I was in high school, you know, <laughs> I would have been I would have been. Clamoring and in just an ins- insatiable desire for more Van Halen, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I, I get the impulse, but there were no tools back then for me to express it other than by, you know, going to the flea market every weekend and seeing if there was a new poster. And of course, there wasn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, and, and here we are in a time when, when people are preying on that insatiable desire. Right. And they're doing it, and they're monetizing it. I don't begrudge them, but all of us are so easily seduced and fooled, and it's too late when we wake up. Vero doesn't necessarily isn't going to fix that, but it it lessens the impulse. And and if you follow Zach on Vero or me, what you're going to get is a much more sincere look at that person and what's going to be and and what. They intend to share without distraction, without selling out, without being monetized. You know, that's a pretty exciting idea. And, and I hope it takes off. Mm-hmm. I think it is taking off in, in no small part to a guy like Zach being there and sharing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Really sincerely, that is coming from Zach Snyder. That's not in filter through a marketing department. That's, that's Zach. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And, and if it had been Eddie Van Halen, you know, 30 years ago, I'd have lost my mind.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um i just have one more question i want to ask you so i know that you traveled recently you're in east africa and i was just wondering if that's related to ben affleck's charity and also what other kind of charities and causes have you been involved in
1: well i i've been going to coffee regions of the world over the last decade or so working with a wonderfully progressive coffee importer out of portland who has now spun off a nonprofit called the Relationship Coffee Institute. And I think they're, they're largely funded by the Bloomberg philanthropies or Michael Bloomberg himself. And so that is going on in Rwanda. And knowing that Ben has an operation out of Eastern Congo, whenever I'm in Rwanda, I just tack on huh. some time for his operation. I see. So they're, they're, neighboring countries. They're about three hours apart by car from city to city. So, uh, it's crazy to be that. A field, and not try and spread, uh, you know, some goodwill to folks I know. Mm-hmm. And in this case, this last week or two weeks ago, I was shooting coffee, of course, in Rwanda. But the efforts that ECI was doing in Congo were also coffee. So I was mm-hmm. uh, it was well within my wheelhouse, and happy to contribute where I could. Mm-hmm. I made some really fun, strong images of of coffee farmers and the process going on there. That fledgling process. As they uh, as they try and reach, you know, markets like Starbucks.
0: And what's Ben's charity overall? So it involved coffee in this case, but it's what's the larger mission on that one?
1: It's just a fabulous
0: operation. It, they've really
1: it's like philanthropy 3.0. They've allowed the Congolese to determine what they need. Hmm. It's not they you know it's not some white, caped crusader coming in and saying, this is what you need, my gosh, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. It's, they are determining what their needs are. So it's, uh, you know, former child soldiers who need to be learn some skills to reintegrate themselves into society. In this case, last week, it was coffee farmers who have a long tradition of making coffee, but now due to the wars and other conflicts, can't reach you know markets like Starbucks. Well, well, Ben can help with that certainly. But it's it all Congolese-led initiatives hmm. that then just that Ben can help fund and and uh, tap markets to help them achieve their their goals. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty smart. It's like again, imagine you're Ben Affleck. You, you know some coffee farmers in Congo. They're desperately in need of finding a market. He can go knock on Howard Schultz's door. Mm-hmm. Because is Ben Affleck, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly how it goes down, but that's yeah. the that's the simple enough premise. Mm-hmm. And he's. He, I don't know what brought him to Eastern Congo initially, but it is a uh, a part of the world that could use a hand, and uh, it's pretty obvious if you've ever been there that that doing so would make perfect sense.
0: That sounds great. And I, I will post a link into these show notes for people if they want to contribute or find some way to help out. Sounds like great stuff happening over there.
1: Yeah, it was on their website this morning, actually, and there's a donate button and all the rest of it. I and mean, again, it super neat operation, really lovely people. I have nothing but nice things to say about that operation.
0: Well, that sounds great, and uh, Clay, thanks so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate the work, and we appreciate you being our uh, pair of eyes and lenses there on the sets. So we really look forward to the films in 2017 as well.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm excited to see these films. I mean, uh, I've I've seen the trailers and they're awesome. So the films are going to be awesome as well. And i and I wish whoever's got Aquaman the best of luck running around with Momoa, <laughs> <laughs> getting wet <That's> probably. <laughs> If... I'm, 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 I'm. I mean, I really love him, and I wish I could have worked on that film. But stay lucky.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. All right. You got it. Best of luck. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Justice League Universe podcast, and a big thank you to Clay Enos for being so generous with his time and for sharing his perspectives. You can find Clay on Vero, of course, but also on Twitter at Clay Enos. Our next episode is going to be a one-year anniversary retrospective on Batman v Superman, and we will be sharing lots of thoughts from our listeners about why they love BBS. The plan right now is to release that episode on March 25th, but I do want to give everyone a heads up that my wife and I are expecting our little girl to be born any day, so if she decides to come on the 24th or 25th, I may just be a few days late in releasing that anniversary episode. So if there is a delay, that's the reason, and you can wish me luck that maybe she'll have a March 25th birthday. I wouldn't mind that at all. In the meantime, you can check out our full scene-by-scene analysis of BVS, which we just finished up, and it's available through our podcast feed, but also collected and indexed at comicandscreen.blogspot.com. Our plan for the podcast in April and May is to continue to analyze Suicide Squad, but also to prepare for the release of Wonder Woman. Thanks again for listening to the Justice League Universe podcast. You can follow us at JLU Podcast on Twitter.